0: Here at Sagebrush, we have 11 plays straight out of our playbook, The Bible. Let's recap. Number one, we believe God is intimately concerned about each individual lost person, and therefore, reaching them is a priority of our church. Number two, we believe the church should remain culturally relevant while remaining doctrinally pure. Number three, we believe that the Bible is the catalyst for transformation in individual lives and in the church. Just like in any game, knowing the plays isn't enough, you need to put them into action. This week, we'll dive into two more plays from our playbook and discover how each of us can truly get in the game. Welcome to everybody in the room, everybody watching on TV and on the stream. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family, all the multi-sites all over the state of New Mexico and in Belize as well. We also have lots of small groups that meet all over the country, all around the world. People tune in to the Sagebrush uh, stuff that we have on YouTube and on our app. Here's what they do, friends. They gather together their family and their friends, and they meet in their homes. This is where people don't even have anything close to a Sagebrush that's near them. And then they watch the service together. They sing the songs together. Together, and then they use the small group curriculum that's on the Sagebrush app and they sit there after the service and they have their small group time together. And so we're seeing pockets of these just rising up all over the country. So we want to welcome you as well. We're glad you're a part of the Sagebrush family. If you are watching this all by yourself why don't you just go ahead and invite a couple of people to come over to your house, have some pie, I don't know, cake. I like brownies an awful lot. And you can sit around, watch the service, and then talk about the difference that Jesus can make in your life. The Bible says "As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You don't have to be in a big church to grow in your relationship with Christ. You could do that with your friends and your family. So we hope that you'll take advantage uh, of these resources. All right, let's get into the message today. Desmond Doss was a conscientious objector in World War II. He did not want to take a weapon onto the battlefield. He said that he wanted to bring life that he didn't want to take life. Well, he endured unbelievable ridicule from his fellow soldiers and from his commanding officer. Uh, He was even put up on uh, court issues. and, And finally, he was given permission to go into battle. Probably one of the first people ever in World War II to go into battle without a weapon by his side. But he was a medic, and he found himself in Okinawa, and he was up on a ridge called Hacksaw Ridge. You have probably have seen the movie. You've heard of the movie about his life story. Well, there on Hacksaw Ridge, there was intense fighting that was going on, and many of the troops, the United States troops, were wounded in the battle. Doss said for reasons he didn't fully understand, he wasn't wounded in the battle, and when the troops retreated to go get reinforcements for another frontal attack, he stayed up on the mountain ridge to try to work with those who were wounded, who were hurt. Now, even though this meant grave damage, grave danger, he could have easily had gone back down the ridge to safety. He stayed up there. And this was his reasoning. This is what he said. He said, I did not believe that I should value my life more than theirs, Those men had families back home, and they were counting on me to get them back to safety, so I decided to stay with them and take care of as many of them as I could. So here's what he would do. He would go from one soldier to the next. He would give them the medication that was necessary to numb their pain. And then he got a pulley system that he put together with a stretcher. And he would tie the person onto the stretcher and then lower the person down on this pulley system, down to safety below where there was another medic that was down there that would cart them in a Jeep and take them back to the hospital. Now here was the prayer that he prayed over and over and over again. He said, God, help me get one more. God help me get one more. He stayed throughout the night. He rescued, it's told, 75 soldiers were brought down by Desmond Doss. I think if he had a motto, it would be this, leave no man behind. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. That we should be a church where no one is ever left behind. Where we look out for each other. We pray for each other. We care for each other. We don't get satisfied with superficial relationships. We want relationships that are deep, that are intimate, that are soul searching and gut wrenching so that we can be everything that Jesus wants us to be. During this Get in the Game series, we've been looking at the different plays that we have as a church. And we're going to talk about two more plays today. Let me read these to you. We believe the Christian home and deliberate hospitality is one of the most effective tools. And, and the second one is this We believe that loving relationships should permeate every aspect of church life. In a nutshell, we believe that no one in our church should ever be alone. Now, here's what's interesting. We allow you to be alone if you want to be. Do you remember during this series we said we allow you to be anonymous for as long as you want to be anonymous. If you just want to come here and check out the claims of Christ and you don't want to engage in anything beyond that, we allow you to do that. We allow you to go at your own pace. So it's very possible that you can come to this church for weeks, months, even years, and nobody even know who you are. Let's say it for what it is. For some of us, that's all you're looking for in a church. You're just looking for a place where you can do your one hour of obligation. You're looking for a place where you can just show up for one hour, sit, soak, sour, and split. And that's about all you're expecting the church to provide for you. And if that's you today, I want to explain something to you. You're really missing out on the beauty of the church. Because the beauty of the church is about doing life together. It's about building relationships with each other. It's about making an impact together around this world that you could never make as an individual. It's more than just going to church. It's actually being the church. And here's what's interesting. We know we need this. We know we need relationships. I mean, over and over and over again in the Bible, it talks about the need for us to look out for each other, to care for each other, and and to support one another. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is that found in the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses is leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And as he's heading that direction, the Amaleks attack them. Now, let me give you a little background to who the Amaleks were. Uh, Amaleks were the descendants of Esau. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? They were two brothers and Jacob was a deceiver and so he deceived his brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. Well, hundreds of years have gone by and the desert dweller Amalek's who are the descendants of Esau are still ticked off at the descendants of Jacob for what Jacob did to Esau. And so when they see them coming across their territory to get to the promised land, they see this as an opportunity to attack them. And so they attack them from the rear. And so Moses tells Joshua, I want you to get uh, the army together, and I want you to go to battle against the Amaleks. And so that's what happens. Look at this. It says, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Ur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek with the edge of the sword. Okay, so we got Moses. He's up on the hillside. He's got the staff of God in his hand. And when he raises the staff of God up as the battle is happening below him, when they see him with his hands raised high with the staff of God, they fight harder and they begin to win the battle. But I don't know if you've ever held your hands up like this for any amount of time. You get tired over a little bit of time and so his hands would begin to go down and when his hands went down, well the Amaleks would then rally in the battle. And so he couldn't keep his hands up. Now why in the world did he put his hands up in the first place? Well there was two reasons for that. One was to encourage the people that Moses was with them, that God was with them. And it was a reminder to the people that Moses was interceding on their behalf, that he was praying for their victory, that God would fight on their behalf. But he kept getting weary. So Aaron and Ur ran over and they grabbed his arms and they raised his arms up to do that which he could not do himself. You say, what's the point of the story? Well, how many of you are watching here today, or how many are in this room right now, and you just can't even get your arms up anymore because the battle has worn you out? And you want to raise your hands and praise and worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but life has gotten tough. And you just can't seem to overcome this, and you just can't seem to overcome that, and you're feeling discouraged. You need people in your life who will lift your hands when you can't lift them yourself. You need people in your life who will remind you that God is still on the throne, that God is in control, and he can do exceedingly abundantly more than anything we've ever dreamed or imagined. We need each other, and yet we don't lean on each other. You can be in a room this large, you can be anywhere with a ton of people, and nobody knows you. It is epidemic in our country today, the amount of loneliness that's out there. The amount of aloneness. Don't even have a friend they can turn to. No one they can really bear their soul with. So how do people deal with this? Well, I'll tell you what they do. They buy pets. They do. And there's nothing wrong with having a pet. There's nothing wrong with having a dog. Might be something wrong with having a cat. There's nothing wrong with having a dog. (laughs) They, They buy pets. They stay busy. Some stay drunk. Some try to be successful. Some by lovers, some seek therapy, some seek God, but not very many. We learn to live with it, surrounded by a sea of people, putting up walls around everybody, never trusting anybody, and that's not what God has for any of us. Do you you remember, some of you old-timers remember this name, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Do you remember that name? You young people probably don't know who that was. That was the woman. She was an atheist, and she decided that she didn't like the fact that we had mandatory prayer in our public schools. So she went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she got mandatory prayer taken out of our public schools. That's worked out really good for us, hadn't it? She was this this big-time atheist, outspoken atheist. She wanted to be a politician. She wanted to be rich. But she, she, she lived a, an alone life, an empty life, a, a life of isolation. And, and nobody really knew it. Nobody really knew what was going on in her mind. Nobody knew what she was really thinking until she got in some trouble with the tax folks. She got behind on her tax payments. so She owed a quarter million dollars to the government. So it was ordered that she had to sell off her diaries. And so people bought her diaries. They wanted to know her thoughts, her feelings about life, the most intimate thoughts of the most known atheist at the time. What they found was a little bit surprising. Some of it wasn't. In one diary she wrote, I want money and power, and I'm going to get it. By age 50, I want $600,000 in the bank, a Cadillac car, a mink coat, a cook, and a housekeeper. Well, don't we all? What was interesting in her diaries is she also wrote about her atheism. This is what she wrote. I think atheism is done. I failed in marriage. I failed in motherhood. And as a politician. What was the biggest shock was the volumes of her diaries that talked about her overwhelming loneliness. This was the reoccurring phrase she wrote over and over again. Somebody somewhere loved me. On one page, she wrote it down six times. Somebody, somewhere, love me. God wants to have a relationship with you. He doesn't want religion. He doesn't want you to follow him because you have to. He wants you to follow him because you want to, because you've fallen in love with him. And nothing will ever satisfy your soul except a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. And we develop that in prayer. We develop that reading the Bible. We develop that living out his word every single day. But you ready for this? God also said it's not good for us to be alone. That we need relationships, that we need other people to do life with. So we're just going to make that as a public proclamation right now. You can play along with the campuses. You can play along at home. We're going to do it in the room, okay? I want you to turn to the person that's sitting next to you and say, you need me. Go ahead, just do it. Say it. You need me. Say it. Come on. Say it with some passion, say it like you mean it. Come on, you need me. Tell them. You tell them back right now, you need me. Say it, say it. All right, now you say this, you ready? Look at them, look them deep in the eye and say, I need you. Say it. And then you say it back, I need you. We just had over 100 marriage proposals just take place right there. We'll do a two-for-one special after the service, help you out. (laughs) I know right now I've got some young man going, oh, man, I wish Todd was, I wish I'd have known he was going to do that because there's that pretty girl. I should have sat next to her. This is my opportunity. (laughs) Help me help you. Here's the deal. We all know we need it, and yet we don't embrace it. We're scared to death of it but boy, we want it. Pastor gets up and starts talking about friendships, talking about relationships, and really doing life together with somebody else, and being vulnerable, and having a band of brothers, a band of sisters to do life with. We're all like, man, I'd love to have that, but you just can't find it. And you know why we believe that? Because we've tried. Every single one of us has been burned. See, that's the interesting thing about the human condition, isn't it? Man, we want to draw close to people, And yet there's something inside of us because we've been wounded before that we begin to put up defense mechanisms and we begin to push people away. I was reading a book the other day, and in the book it told a story about a guy named Jim Roberts. Jim went to this class for his fourth grade son. His name was Daniel. He was there to observe the class. And they had set the kids up to play a game. It's called Balloon Stomp. What you do is you put a piece of yarn around an ankle, and you have a balloon that's attached to it, and then the kids kind of move around in this small little space, and they try to pop each other's balloons. I want to illustrate this for you. So we got some kids that are going to come out right now. Kids, come on out. Play a little Balloon Stomp for us. This will be a lot of fun. As you can see, they are dressed in different uh, jerseys. Let's see what we got here. Nothing but love. Nothing but love. Okay. Rams, nobody cares. All right. We're just going to stand in front of the Raider. You're going to be the most alone one up here. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Chargers, nobody cares. And yeah. Am I to believe that we have 49er fans here? Well, that's hurtful. <laughs> All right, so they're gonna play a little balloon stomp. So you guys got your little square right there and you're gonna do your, oh, you'll probably notice that we don't have anybody here representing the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and you're probably wondering, why Todd? We couldn't find a child who would represent the team. <laughs> so, so weird, it's just really weird. All right, you guys ready? Yeah. Count of three, you go. One, two, three, go. Ooh, go, 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 go. Come on, come on, come on. Engage, engage. Battle, battle. Come on. I can't catch any of these kids. Ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven. Come on, Six. Gang up on the 49er. Gang up on the 49er. Yes. Keep going. Three, two, one. game. And the chief remains. Good job. That's here for the kids. They did a great job. I hope that's a foreshadowing of things to come. That's what I hope. (laughs) Probably not, but I hope so. All right, so they watched the game be played. You saw it be played. It's kind of a dog-eat-dog kind of a game, right? Well, he's sitting there, and they bring in another class of kids. These kids are special needs kids. And they tie the yarn around the ankle, and they give them a balloon, and they explain the rules that they're supposed to pop each other's balloons. But they went through the rules so quickly that they didn't quite grasp it. That they were supposed to be that aggressive towards each other. And so when the whistle blew, those kids played the game a little bit differently. One little girl immediately put her balloon down like a place kicker, and a little boy came over and jumped on the balloon and popped it. And she clapped, and he clapped, and they both hugged <laughs> and celebrated. And then a little boy, not to be outdone, took his balloon, put it down for her, and she jumped on the balloon, and they popped it, and they both celebrated again. In fact, the whole way the game was being played, they were all helping each other pop each other's balloons. And at the end, all the balloons were popped. Nobody won, nobody lost. They did it together. And they were better for it. That's the way it is with relationships today. You get to choose. Push people away, dog eat dog, don't trust anybody else, don't let anybody in your circle, pop balloons, or embrace others. Open yourself up to the possibility of a relationship that goes beyond talking about the weather, or talking about latest fashions, or latest current events, where you actually talk about something of substance. And in these relationships, as iron sharpens iron, you begin to become more and more like Jesus. Can I tell you something, friends? I've lived my life many years keeping people at a distance away. You talk about somebody who's been burned a bunch? Oh, you can start with me. And you get to a place where he gets to be such a crackly crisp, you're like, I'm not trusting anybody ever again. And then you find yourself alone. With no one to lean on outside of your family, no one to talk to, no one to have a relationship with. And here's the thing it's epidemic among men more than it is women. Women are much more relationally keen than a man is. A man thinks, I got myself in it, I'll get myself out of it. I don't let anybody to know what I'm really thinking, what I'm really feeling. And if we admit it, it shows weakness. And if we show weakness, then we think we're not a man. The correct polar opposite of what scripture teaches us. So I decided years ago, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to keep people away. I'm not going to play balloon stomp. I want to do life with other people. So I'm going to try to convince you in the next few minutes to get into a small group. And obviously, over all the years I've been your pastor, I've not done a very effective job to convince you to get in a small group because 70% of you aren't in one. You know you need it. And you're in hopes that the things that I talk about will be as advertised. But you don't have time right now. And you're super busy facing your loneliness and your aloneness by yourself. And here we sit again, still struggling, still longing for something more. I'll give you three reasons I think you should get in a group. Number one is this. You need others to help you grow spiritually. You're not going to do this on your own. Very few people grow spiritually on their own. That's why Jesus had the 12 disciples. Jesus knew he had to spend three, three and a half years with those guys, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get them ready for what was ahead. I mean, he just knew he did. He knew left to themselves, they were never going to be the game changers that they became. They were never going to be the world influencers that they became. And so he just kept pouring his life into him, didn't he? If you ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll know that they followed Jesus everywhere that he went. And many times Jesus would teach them through stories or what we call parables, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And I love the disciples because they were so clueless about this stuff. Because Jesus would say, Let me tell you a story. And you get done with the story. And then afterwards, you'd see the disciples over there really like, what, what, what was that about? I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm glad they came to Jesus and said, hey man, what what, what was that story? What's the point of that story? Because that gave us some more insight into what the story meant, what Jesus was trying to say to them. Can you imagine how many conversations they must have had along the way? Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of some of those conversations? Hey guys, I I know you think that this is the way to success, but this is the path to success. I, I know you think this is important, but that's not important when it comes to eternity. This is what's important. This is what's worth giving your life to. This is what's not worth giving your life to. And don't you think they had lots of conversations about that? Don't you think they wrestled with those things and debated those things? And when they got off track, Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the direction we're going. We're going to, no, I don't want you to have that attitude. I want you to have this over and over and over again. Disciples just didn't get it most of the time, just like we don't get it most of the time. If you're brand new to the Christian faith and you're just now starting to read your Bible, you're going to read lots of things that Jesus teaches that at first glance, they don't make a lick of sense at all. We call them the upside-down teachings of Jesus. Like this, first is last. Ricky Bobby was wrong. <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last. That's wrong. If you want to be first, Jesus says, be last. You want to be a great? Be a servant. Now, you've never heard that teaching before in your entire life except for Jesus. Because your whole life, it's about kicking and clawing and scratching to get to the top. And if you've got to bury a few people along the way, then so be it, we'll bury them. Because if you ain't first, you're last. And Jesus comes on and says, no, 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 you got it all messed up here. You want to be great? Be the servant. Greatest title you can ever give yourself isn't the title CEO or even president. The greatest title is a servant. Because one day, on the Judgment Day, he'll review your life. And what you want to hear him say is, well done, servant. Good and faithful servant. Now, don't you think that has some, I mean, we've been programmed to go another way. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, no, no, everything you've been thinking, all the trajectory of your life, is completely different. Don't you think that's worthy of a conversation or two? Don't you think that's worth wrestling over the teachings of Christ? I'll give you another one. If you want to be strong, then be weak. <laughs> that making sense to anybody? There's not a man here that bought into that before Jesus came on the board. I mean, I'm gonna be strong. I'm gonna never see me sweat. I'm a gonna... can't admit my weakness. That's why most husbands can't be vulnerable with their wives. They can't share with their wives what they're really thinking, what their real fears, their real concerns, their real worries, because it would show weakness. And they're the man. So you're supposed to be strong for them. And every time you shut down and say what's really going on, they just feel distant from you. See, it's the upside down ways of teachings of Jesus. I'll give you another one. If you want to live, you die. (laughs) Does that make any sense to anybody? What do you mean? Well, Jesus said, well, you've got to take up your cross, deny yourself, and come follow me. A man wants to gain his life, he has to lose it. What does that mean? Well, you lose your dreams. You lose your plans. You lose your hopes. You lose your goals. And you exchange them for the dreams, plans, goals, and aspirations that Jesus has for your life. It's the great transition. It's no longer me for my kingdom. It's now him and his kingdom. And when you start living that way, well, that's where real life and real living is all about. So you come and you listen to me talk about these things and you're like, man, it'd be great to have somebody to talk to. It would be, wouldn't it? That's where the small groups come in. Hey, I'm really struggling with this. I read this the other day. I don't understand this. Does this make sense? How does this play out in my day-to-day life? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a group of like-minded people who are seeking the direction of God that you could go to for help? That's how you grow spiritually. Let me give you a second reason. We need others to hold us accountable. Truth be told, we're all doing more than we're doing. We all know more than we're doing. You don't need more information. We all need more application. Look what the Bible says here. It's a warning. James 1.22 says, don't mean listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Here's what's interesting. Jesus kind of expected the disciples to do what he was teaching them. He said, listen, I want you to be the most loving group of people that the world has ever seen. I want you to love others in the same way I've loved you. He expected them to do it. In fact, he said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. He expected them to do it. He expected them to forgive. (laughs) He expected them to forgive in the same way that Jesus has forgiven us. Because he didn't want us to be full of bitterness and anger and resentment. He wanted us to let that go at the foot of the cross. If God can forgive us for all the terrible things we've done, then we should forgive others for the terrible things they've done to us. He expected them to do it. You ready for this? He expected them to actually live out the kingdom of God. He expected them to readjust their priorities. He expected them to readjust their schedules. He expected them to leverage every part of their life for something that was bigger and greater than themselves, something that would live forever, to give their life to that which is eternal. Well, let me tell you something about the truth about the human condition. If we don't have somebody challenging us, we'll always coast. We'll never grapple with these issues. We'll always take the path of least resistance. So in a small group, what should happen over the course of time, don't do this immediately. If you're not in a small group and you sign up for one, don't do this immediately. You're just going to look weird, okay? Just don't do that. But over time, in your small group, you're going to have chemistry with somebody. I think guys and guys should be together. Girls and girls should be together when it comes to the accountability time. And you're going to have chemistry with somebody, and you're going to go over them and say, listen, I'm tired of being stuck. I'm tired of not moving forward in my relationship with God, my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my kids, can we get together and just ask some tough questions and help each other become everything that God wants us to become? You you say, well, what kind of questions do we ask? Well, have you been reading the Bible lately? Tell me about what you've been reading. Tell me about a verse of Scripture that you've been memorizing. Most of us aren't memorizing any Scripture, most of us aren't spending time with God. But if you knew someone was going to ask you that question, wouldn't that up your game just a little bit? How about somebody looking across the table, maybe meet maybe once a month or once every couple of weeks, and you're looking across the table at them and say, hey, how's it going with your spouse? How are you guys really doing? How's it going with your kids? How can I be praying for you? And then you get vulnerable and you really share the real issues and you seek the word of God and you help each other out because they've got struggles as well, right? How about this one? Here's a good question. Have you been looking at anything you shouldn't be looking at? You downloading stuff you shouldn't be downloading? You looking at images that you shouldn't be looking at? If you knew that question was coming, it might pause you before you download it again. You being truthful, you a liar, you a gossip. You an exaggerator. You making yourself look bigger than you should. How about this one? When's the last time you shared Jesus with somebody else? Hey, did you invite church this past week? It would step up our game if we knew those questions were coming. But I just pinpointed why we don't do this. We don't want to be asked these questions. There's not a person in this room right now or at home going, oh, man, I'm writing these down. I'm going to get with somebody right now, and they're going to hammer me every two weeks. This is going to be awesome. There's nobody doing that. Do you know why? Because we fake it. We don't want to deal with this stuff. Are you kidding me? We don't want to hardly look in the mirror because we don't like the reflection that we see. And let's just face facts. It's just a whole lot easier to bury this stuff than to deal with it. And to think that we would ever be vulnerable enough to actually share our weakness with somebody else? Who wants to do that? And so here We sit just as frustrated, discontented, disappointed in who we are and what we've become and what we could be, the potential gap of what we could be. We keep up the walls. We won't let anybody in. We just keep on playing balloon stomp, pushing people aside, figuring it out on our own. But just what if you decided, I don't want to live like that anymore? And even though it might be a little bit painful and a little bit difficult, if I had a friend like that, I could probably be the husband or the wife, the mom or the dad, the friend, the follower of Jesus that I've always wanted to be. But you have to take a risk. I need people who will protect me. I need people who will be honest with me. I need people who will warn me. I remember years ago we were at this conference and I had just gotten done speaking and God just showed up and did a great work and we had to get to the airport. So my wife and I got in the rental car and we were heading to the airport and I said, that was awesome, wasn't it? She said, that was absolutely amazing. I said, yeah. I said, I wonder how many other great preachers there are in America today. And without missing a beat, she said, one less than you think. <laughs> that didn't happen, but that's funny right there. I, I need people in my life who will tell me hard truths. And then I have to wrestle with those truths. And I have to make a decision. Am I going to sacrifice this to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Because I've got a long way to go. But I've got blind spots. And it's not fair to think that my wife is the only person that should be able to speak in my life. I need other people in my life. Do you have that? And then the third thing is this. You need to get into a group because the storms of life are going to come. And they come at the most unexpected times, don't they? When you least expect it. Eight days ago, I lost hearing in my right ear. You already know I lost it in my left. You prayed for me. I got 70% of it back. And then on Wednesday afternoon last week, the other ear began to clog. I've lost 50%. I don't have any tumors. I've had MRIs, CAT scans, all that stuff. It's got sick in her ears, I guess. I don't know. I'm on steroids. So I have a little roid rage right now, so I want you to know that. <laughs> I have friends I called. I have a prayer team that I called. I need prayer. Didn't see this one coming. Thought I was getting past this one. And here's another storm. Sound like your life? I know it does. I hear about the things that you go through. Terrible, terrible things. You got people who pray with you? People come over to your house? People who talk with you and help you through it? Call me crazy. I just don't think anybody should sit in a hospital alone. I don't think anybody should be waiting on life and death test results by themselves. And I certainly don't think anybody should be standing at the graveside of a family member or a friend. Lowering their whole world in a box. And have no one to support them and no one to lean on them outside of their immediate family. I think that's just ridiculous. I love the fact that when Jesus dies, the disciples met together in the upper room. They locked the doors for fear that the soldiers were coming for them next. But what I love about it is that they met together. They didn't isolate themselves from each other. You know why? Because they knew that they needed each other. Here's the interesting thing about crises in life. You just don't know when they're coming, so you need to prepare today. Years ago, Sam Rayburn was the uh, speaker of the house, and he had terminal cancer. And he shocked D.C. when he said he was leaving Washington, D.C. to go back to Bowman, Texas, a small little town in Texas. All his colleagues were astonished. They said, why in the world would you go to Bowman, Texas? I mean, the medical facilities are right here in Washington, D.C. All of the state-of-the-art doctors and all the state-of-the-art equipment right here in D.C. And this was his response. He said, because in Bowman, Texas, they know if you're sick and they care when you die. So if you find yourself in the midst of a crisis today and you're alone, you've chosen it. But it doesn't have to be that way. You have something in common with all these people. It's a relationship with Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, we could give relationships another shot. And maybe, just maybe, if we all would do this again, maybe we would be a little bit better at it. And a little kinder. And a little more supportive and encouraging. And maybe, just maybe, we could be the friend and find the friends that we always wanted to have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I I, I want this so badly because I see so many people who are hurting, so many people who are alone, and so many people who have walls up and they're facing every difficulty, every crisis by themselves. Lord, there's potential here. Potential for real life and real relationships where we can really care about each other and get beyond the superficial and actually help each other be everything that you've called us to be. So I pray, Lord, we take a relational risk. Lord, that we would take that step of faith and we'd open ourselves up to relationships once again. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.